Welcome to KafaruCast, everyone. Uh, we're still coming at you free, unsponsored. I want to make sure and throw that in. I've got Frank playing on his phone across from me. Say hello, Frank. Hello, Frank. <laughs> and I've got the great hammer, Tim Gillingham, uh, on the on the other line, man. I appreciate you coming on here. Not a problem. My life. my pleasure. <laughs> uh, it's, always, it's always good to come on here and, and bash a guy that go on a seven-day elk hunt without a freaking pair of binoculars. <laughs> I forgot. You're still giving me crap about that. You did that? I did. I, I didn't want to carry him. When the fuck did you do Not that? Not only did he do it, he talked somebody else into it, too. <laughs> Yeah, there's some truth in that. It was Doug Rosin. I was like, yeah, you don't need those, man. Um, was yeah, it a that pretty was... timbered unit. Yeah, yeah we yeah, hunted I, all I'm over. I'm the guy pushing for sanity. I was the guy pushing for sanity. Like, hey, maybe we should call some guy to pack our meat out. No, I'll, and, and Snyder's like, no, I'll pack it out. Yeah, that's what you got Aaron for. <laughs> hey, cut and wait for binoculars, I guess, so he can pack elk meat. Like, yeah, there's no logic. Sometime I'm impervious to logic. Didn't seem not that important at the time, but you know, gear wise, you know, like one of the biggest things I had trouble with at first, as stupid as this is, is all the shit that that string hits. I didn't have to worry about that with yeah. my compound. Man, <laughs> cuff on my sleeve, collar on my shirt, webbing on my bino harness. I mean, I was like, you know, the belt on my, my kafari, the big belt buckle. I'd catch mm-hmm. that bar tack, um, the end of the webbing, so it won't pull back through the buckle. I'd catch that with my string. That's like hitting a brick wall for your string. It locks up in on that. <laughs> so, I mean, just stuff like that was a little bit of a learning curve, too, that, you know, some of that I learned at the wrong time to learn it. Like, you shouldn't be learning that shit yeah. when you're shooting an animal. I'm like, huh, probably should have practiced <laughs> with that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, the thing with... Uh, uh, bears is they're kind of they're a herbivore in the spring yeah. and they're a carnivore and a herbivore in the fall yeah. or, or I've explained it to people yeah. that way because they you know bears um, get basically a it's a butt plug for a I mean that's the redneck term but they so they can go into hibernation they, yeah. their stomach plugs up so when they come out of hibernation they're looking for the most luscious nutritious nutrient filled grass to get their stomach working and to kick that thing out fire it back up yep yep and so you know when i explain to people you know hunting i'm not really hunting bears per se in the spring i'm hunting really nutrient nutritious grass yeah. that bears are going to be on yeah. in the fall you're hunting berries usually you know depending yeah. on where you're at and the the thing with the like with bears now it'd be a stretch i wouldn't eat a grizzly um but I, black bear is good. Um, I can't say I've tried grizzly because I haven't. So mm-hmm. I, but um, it's actually really good. If, good? You, if you, but I mean, it's intensive. I'm sure there's grizzly bear guides all over the world that probably want to roll over in their graves or are rolling their eyes. It's intensive to prepare. Yeah, but it is very good. In the film, you see um, there's a shot where I'm talking about eating bear, and you see this gentleman laying down a giant roast in a really hot um, cast iron pan, and that is grizzly bear meat that we're cooking there. I was wondering. It looked. I thought because it was such a large, it was big a big piece. chunk, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it was phenomenal to eat. But um, in full disclosure, the gentleman that was laying that down in that cast iron pan is a chef of the highest regard, and so. Um, what he prepared was, I mean, if I, if I had you eat what he prepared that day for us, um, you, you would be asking what supermarket you could go and buy that stuff. And it was, it was 
truly remarkable, unbelievable. We so up in in uh, BC, we we use the Traeger, mm-hmm. and oh, I mean, you can get um, what it, uh, liver flukes from from bear if you don't cook yeah. it through, right? Yeah. So. Uh, I was a little nervous at first with the Traeger because it does slow cook it more. But I mean, I've never gotten liver flukes personally. But mm-hmm. that bear on the Traeger is unbelievable. It's it's awesome. Now, yeah, it's really good. Oh yeah, and a lot of times too, we'll we'll bear makes great chili, and so mm-hmm. uh, Amy wanted to make bear chili. She she's not a hunter, but she she's a cook, yeah. and so. Like she was amazed because it is fatty and bit flavorful that how much better the bear chili was than the elk chili. Mm-hmm. And she could – a lot of people can't tell. you. Could, there was a noticeable difference. And so I kind of run into the same thing explaining to people like mountain lion is really good. You know, really like, good. You know, you may look at it as, um, you know, you're eating your neighborhood cat. But th- this cat eats – two and a half deer a month or whatever the mm-hmm. hell it is. And, I, you know, it's a different, you know, trying to put things into perspective for people is what I try to do in the, in the sense of like, hey, I understand where you're coming from, mm-hmm. but let me rebuttal a little bit and give mm-hmm. you a different perspective to look at it. And you do a great job of that. So, I mean, it's a good thing for the hunting community. And I appreciate that. And, and not to um, digress on something that would be terrible animal cruelty, but if, we, if, if your average neighborhood cat was just a feral cat and we lived in true wilderness without these organized societies and you and I had to kill, quote unquote, the neighborhood cat, a feral cat to eat it, it would be just fine. Yep. It would be just fine because that thing is crushing songbirds and mice and voles all, all day long. And so we would kill that animal and eat it. And and it's not going to be as appealing as a deer or sheep or moose or elk, but it's, it's going to be um, just fine to eat. And, but mountain lion just takes it to... Um, another level. And, and it's funny how many times guides and outfitters and other hunters, they've never even considered the idea. It's not that they've killed a ton of mountain lions and haven't eaten them. They've never even killed a mountain lion. They've never even considered eating one. They've never even considered um, kind of the full circle pieces that come together when you're hunting an animal like that. But when we cooked it in, in BC last last February, I think it was, we couldn't get it from the grill to the table. Yeah. People people would start grabbing it. Like, yeah. you know, like, I mean, we might as well have been making egg rolls. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was just not making it to the kitchen table. And, and twice we made, we made, um, I got in an argument with a buddy of mine who shall remain nameless, but he, he's like, bear meat is not good. And I said, I'll tell you what, he was hunting some bears before I got there. Mm-hmm. And I know he was hunting two boars that he estimated to be in the upper teens. He knew these bears. They're you know, old, 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 big boars. Their teeth were all broken off. He'd watched these boars many times. They were in somewhat of a predictable place. And I said, I tell you what, if you kill one of those boars, you save his meat for us to cook. And and he's like, no way. And so he ended up <laughs> killing one. He, he scunned it out and he sent me a picture and he's like, this thing is slimy and yellow and disgusting. I said, please <laughs> save it. So he saved it. We cooked it. And everyone that was there just destroyed it, ate it all, asking for more, wanted us to cook more. And this is from a bear that is ancient. Yeah. Yeah. People, okay, you go to McDonald's. Well, I don't go to McDonald's, but people go to McDonald's and yeah. it's a greasy burger. Yeah. And they love a greasy burger. Yeah. Well, a bear is greasy. Yeah. So, even though people, that's kind of a slight towards a bear, 
you're eating greasy fried chicken, you're eating a greasy burger. And if you, if you know that going ahead and when you're cooking a bear and you, you, you use that for the bear cooking rather than just thinking it's greasy, I don't want to eat it. Yeah. It's, it's pretty damn good. And I've only eaten mountain lion a few times cause you just don't get to shoot that many. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. um, but mountain lion is, it reminds me of chicken. I hate to say that, but as yep. far as the, how the meat pulls apart and everything else, it tastes, I think it tastes a lot better than chicken personally, but yeah. I know, um, I'm going to try and bring back some for Amy so she can try it. To me, the appeal of long-distance shooting just isn't there. I admire it. You know, I recognize the skill that goes along with it, but that's just not my bag. But if I can kill something at 10 yards or less, then even if I don't drop the string on it, I feel like, you know, that was a victory in my mind, you know, because I've gotten inside that, that deer's super comfort zone and they didn't know I was there, whether I was in a tree stand or on the ground. And I don't care if it was a button buck. You know, that deer had no clue that I was there. And you get to watch that behavior that if you're punching a release at 50 yards, then you didn't get to witness all that, you know, from 50 yards to 10 yards, what that deer or that turkey or, or whatever animal it was, you know, what they're doing. So that's that's a big part of the draw of this stuff for me is um, – I don't think it makes you necessarily a better hunter. It makes you a different hunter. Um, you kind of become more of a student of the animals. A good choice, and that I might just stick with that for next year. So we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, speaking of hunting, I, I think I was talking to you last week or the week before, and you're like, you should uh, you should come out. Um, Roosevelt elk hunting is a real kick in the dick. I was like, oh, dude, that definitely makes me want to go out there. So, <laughs> from what the, from what it sounds like, you're always um, busting brush and and hunting in the rain and stuff like that. And it's definitely some stuff that we don't really have to deal with here in Colorado. Thing, I mean, you guys have you know my history and in, in uh for the most part, when you walk into an REI and you um tell them that um you know you're a hunter, there's a fifty fifty chance they're going to look down on you anyway. So. If you, you know, I mean, it's in some places it's more like 80, 20 that they're going to look down on you. But if you tell most people at a mountaineering store, um, you know, and, a any kind of a backpacking store that you're going to be packing between 80 and maybe up to 150 pounds, they're probably not going to believe you for one, but they're not also not going to know what to, what to do to deal with it because they haven't dealt with that themselves. And so most um, REIs don't carry a mountaineering boot, meaning a stiff shank boot. A lot of them just carry, unless you go to like their flagship stores, they're going to carry just a, a hiking boot. And like most people have seen, you get on a website, I mean, you know, pick a brand, uh, 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 Lawa, let's say, you're going to have like all these that you've got, you know, every day and you've got rock climbing and you've got mountaineering and, and backpacking and that, and that all has to do, uh, you know, stiffness and everything, uh, you know, changes for each category. Most people are going to put you, if you say you're an outdoorsy guy or a hunter, they're going to say, oh, you just need a leather boot and it's, you know, a backpacking and whatever. They hand it off to you. And most of those are super flexible boots. Like if you were doing a scale of a one through five, five being a straight mountaineering type shank, most of them are going to be like a two or a three. And, you know, if you're hunting antelope, that's fine. But, I, I, again, I mean, when I met you guys, I had a size 11. I've got a size 12 foot now from not having my shit together early enough and my arches dropping. So that's why I'm such an advocate of, of aftermarket insoles, for one, 
talking to professionals in stiff boots because now I'm all screwed up. What do you What um, do you think? Yeah. I I only bring this up because um, we didn't have any issue. So I missed a lot in the high country hunt, but we didn't have any of those puzzling watch the video over and over this year. I guess did we? Um, I fucked up a lot in Alberta. Yeah, but you didn't hit any. That's what I mean. You didn't wound anything. No. Mm-mm. But I've been faced with what you're talking about. Not to interrupt you, if you were to no, guess, no. what would it, what happen? Because, dude, these things haunt me until the end of time. They drive me crazy when I know I made a good hit or I made a good shot and something else happened. What do you think? Actually, what what go over the scenario of what happened and what do you think caused not finding that bull? Um. Yeah, so if anybody watched the video already that was that, that miss or the hit and non-recovery was shown on, on the Born and Raised series, um, you know, we, I was a steep uphill, so by getting on my knees, it was a completely different view than standing up. Well, I was basically pinned down for 10 or 15 minutes uh, standing up, and every time I would try to, to get to my knees, my pack was rubbing on a tree, and he would, you know, whip his head up. So finally, he kind of lost his footing a little bit. The bull did and kind of had to back up, and I took that opportunity to drop to my knees and opened up my sight picture. Um, me and my cameraman were guessing 27, 25, 27 yards. So I just pulled up, split the 20 and 30 mid body and, and let it fly. Um, the bull kind of reacts with kind of a leg kick and darts off. So um, we all, I mean, at that time, and you see my reaction on video now that I know I didn't find it, it's kind of a stupid reaction, but you know, I thought the bull was dead. You hear the big watermelon thump, everything looked, sounded, felt good. Um, you sit there for an hour, go up and start looking. And, you know, we looked for the arrow for maybe five minutes, couldn't find it. And we're like, oh, we know where he went. Let's look it off the blood trail. And instantly good blood. So your, you know, your, your spirit's up high, um, starts to bleed out of both sides. We're like, all right, this is really good. Um, we had seen him stand there for a little bit, a big pile of blood. And I'm talking, you know, probably 24 inches by 24 inches. And it's thick enough that it's covering the ground. Looks good. Um, and then he takes about 10 more steps and then there's nothing. What I gathered from just looking at the blood is that the, the two drips of blood are fairly close by. I'm thinking if anything, I hit maybe too low or in front of the leg, but in front of the leg doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm just thinking I hit low and kind of just caught the bottom end of his chest. And so that entrance and exit are sitting maybe only six to eight inches apart, um, you know, on his hide and that blood just straight dripping out of the bottom. Um, and then that, that, that heavy blood we got off the bat was just that initial cut. If you look at social media, it does kind of look easy sometimes, hunting. It oh, can yeah. look easy. And if I had a dollar for every person that emailed, I bet you get away more than me, I'm not looking for a 350 bull. I just want something that's, uh, you know, a good a representation of the species. Well, I'm like, yeah, we, we all are an over-the-counter dude. Like, I'm glad you're not looking for a 350 and you're not looking to look like Arnold because neither one of those are probably yeah. going to happen. But because of the social media and everything else, it's difficult. What would you say the average bull shot in Colorado is? Oh, goodness gracious. You're lo- the average bull average bull in Colorado, I'll probably, uh, it's going to be a 4x4 four four to a uh, medium 5x5. Five five. Basically Two the and score and a of bull. a good-sized mule deer. Yeah, probably right. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. you're looking at a two and a half, maybe a three and a half year old bull. I mean, heck, even when I drew my unit one tag, talking with a game, this is back in 2009, I drew unit one, 
So I'm going up there thinking, all right, I want to, I want, you know, I'm looking for that 350 for my elk for a 350 benchmark. I've talked to the game warden. He's like, yeah, the average bull that we kill out of the northwest part of Colorado. So we're talking unit one, two, 201, 10, 10. okay, 260, 270 bull. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is like the, I mean, people are dumping 20 points. It's like, oh yeah, no. Yeah. The, the average bull taken up there is a heck of a lot smaller than what people think. Why? Because people see a number on the internet and if they have never actually held that in their hand, what they, if, if all they've ever seen, there's nothing wrong with this. This is just a statement. If you've been in an over-the-counter unit for your entire life, especially in a unit that has, you know, very low bull to cow ratio to where you're shoot where you're after a two and a half year old bull, the biggest bull you may have ever laid eyes on is a four by five or maybe a five by five. So the first really nice looking six by six that walks in front of you looks absolutely freaking huge. And so they're like, that arrow's going. And I'll tell you, that open there, I guess well, I yeah, opening day, the first day of, of my hunt, or I was up there for almost a week before season, but the first day of season, I had a bull just cranking above camp. I got out in the dark, and he was just cruising the ridge above me. I kind of shadowed him, and this thing sounded awesome. I mean, awesome. And so finally, here comes daylight. It's legal shooting light. I make a couple calls. This bull comes down. I mean, it was one of your most texts, but he, the, his voice was incredible. The call-in was absolutely incredible. And he comes down the mountain, and I mean, I'm looking at him. I'm, I'm thinking, I want to shoot this bull. And I had to stop him. like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just <laughs> pump the brakes a minute. Let's take a look at He was maybe a 300-inch bull. But he Which looked, is a good bull it's in an most awesome areas. Bull. Yeah. It's an awesome bull. I would shoot, I, I tell people, on over-the-counter unit, I will shoot a 260 bull every freaking year. I will lay him down. I mean, I'm... My main focus, though, if you're going to break it down, Aaron, is the predators because, you know, I don't believe you should be taking ungulates without harvesting predators. If I could make the law in North America, I would make it. If you wanted to kill a split-hooved ungulate, you would have to kill two predators, and that's the law I would make because you can't take one without managing the other. It's just how it is. It's a balance. And um, We talked a lot about that when I was up there because uh, I was getting death threats and dumb shit when um, you know, I was posting some of these photos. But, yeah. I mean, we had a, a mountain lion eat a bobcat while we were running the yeah. bobcat. For, for example, we had two lynx. What, one lynx ate the leg off of the other lynx uh, with whatever they were fighting over. And what we hunted for five days— and a guy with a recurve, and I grabbed your 308, but uh, the guy, you know, we shot a bobcat lynx and mountain lion and a wolf in five days. You and guys, think how many predators we drove by looking for certain ones, right? Think of that. Oh, insane. Think of how many. Yeah. And how many lynx. How many well, bear tracks we've seen on our trips still, right? And wolves. And, um, Jesus, a lot of wolf tracks. Wolf, wolves everywhere, right? They just flood in like crazy, and the problem is, is we got an epidemic for the whole province. And every time you work on one spot, they just fill in, they just fill in, they just fill in. And um, yeah, um, people, when you're not in the field, you don't get it. You just you you don't get it, right? When you're in the field, um, you get it. I'm going to tap a little bit about and um, braving the grounds about the Yukon. That was a real sad deal this year with the lady and her baby that were killed, right? And um, that situation is is not about grizzly closure. I, I wish I could say it is, but it's not about grizzly closure. It's a bad, about bad luck, bad timing. But when you live in the mountains, you live in the wilderness, um, 
you're always confronted with grizzly bears in situations, right? And, and it's a tough out there. But when your hands are tied and you're not allowed to do anything about it, that's when it gets super frustrating because they're, grizzlies are one of the coolest animals in the world and so are wolves. I love both species. They're amazing animals, but they don't know how to look after themselves, right? And that's why when you get a lot of the early history books, if you read them, like the first guys in the early 1900s that were doing uh, expeditions, hunting expeditions, they were killing quarter curl and half curl stone sheep because that's the oldest sheep that were out there, okay? And then the whole province of British Columbia did predator control, predator management, not decimation, but predator management for several decades. And that's when Jack O'Connor wrote his great books and great articles about 30 stone rams in a bunch. And wildlife was in abundance and in a good balance because the wilderness up here is massive and it could support it. And that's when we had lots of animals. When, and then the emotions crept in and then people started looking after the world based on emotions and everything's gone to bits since then. And now all, everything's based on emotions rather than reality. Oh, really? Yeah. So we haven't talked about this in a little while, but uh, one of our first episodes that we did, I uh, talked with Aaron about my experience with uh, altitude sickness. And um, the first time I got it was probably five or six years ago. I was on an archery hunt with one of my buddies and... Uh, I didn't know that's what I had at the time, but um, I drank from like a water filter that I thought was dirty. So I thought I got some sort of sickness from the water, but I was telling Aaron about the symptoms that I had. And basically I started getting fluid in my lungs and I was getting extremely tired on the mountain. So we decided to hike out and that night it just got progressively worse and worse. And I got a big uh, Gatorade bottle like this and I would just like breathe out like as hard as I could, like... <laughs> And then fluid would come out. So I filled up two Gatorade bottles that <laughs> night with fluid. And uh, we were supposed to hike in the next day. And we ended up, um, there was another guy at the camp spot with us. And he's like, dude, you need to go to, you need to get down lower. You need to go to a hospital. I think you got altitude sickness. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. Well, I, ended just, <laughs> I ended up just going home. Um, and then uh, two seasons ago, same thing. But this time I kind of knew what I had. Um, basically I was, I had, we didn't do any scouting that season. Um, I scouted quite a bit with Aaron in his spot and then we did a bunch of like backcountry fishing trips. So I kind of felt the pressure when season came around to kind of find deer and I wasn't finding them. So I was moving all over the mountain. I think I've moved camps three different times and I didn't get the symptoms until the third day of the, of the hunt. Um, and basically the third night, which was, I think I went in a couple days early, the third night I was there, I was glassing right before bed and right before I was about to eat dinner. I was only like 50 yards from my camp spot and I started walking back to my camp spot and I got really uh, wheezy and I was really out of breath. And then it progressively, like just like the same as the last time, it, it got worse and worse and worse to where I, I couldn't breathe and I was sitting down eating dinner and I was getting that same wheezing and then the fluid started building up in my lungs. So... Um, that's kind of what I experienced. And then I, since I knew that's what I was going through, I decided to hike out about midnight that night. And it took me like seven hours to go. I don't know. I'm not quite sure how far it was, eight miles or something like that, um, back to camp. And it wasn't much of an incline on the way out. It was more of a, a decline, but I was only walking probably at the furthest 40 yards at a time that I'd be completely out of breath. So whether you're anything in in North America, for the most part, you're you're going to hit a point to where you're really kind of a picking the the ass out of a pepper. You, you 
if you are pumping a 550 grain arrow with 16 to 18% FOC at 265 feet per second, you pretty much can shoot whatever you want, minus maybe dangerous game. And even then, with the right broadhead, it's it arguable how well you would do. But because guys get wrapped up around on speed sometimes and everything, like I said, there's got to be a happy medium. And I have not – that the EFOC is almost impossible to hit when I say above 24 5%. It is almost impossible to hit with a modern compound without – really reinventing the wheel now you you may have had better luck with it than me but just because of the spine um and what the arrow ends up weighing most guys are going to get bored with lobbing logs and if you get extreme foc on a compound your arrow is going to weigh so much by the time that you do people aren't going to be real happy pumping 220 230 out of their bow feet per second when you don't need it compared to Still, you know, deduct 8 to 10%, still having that eight, 18% front of center, you're still having a very lethal setup. And I, and I try to keep that, you know, kind of remind guys of that, like, dude, you're hunting whitetails. What the hell you want, yeah. you know, 27% front of center for? Good Lord. Buy a system that actually works. I was, I was in New Zealand in November last year. Maybe that was after we met. And uh, I went out um, hunting tar. And the guy there said, there isn't a bipod that works here, mate. You know, your classic Kiwi sort of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they're often right. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and he said, I've tried them all. Uh, Best thing is a rucksack. Anyway, uh, he used the javelin on a couple of tar and he said, oh, you, you, you've killed it with this. Mm. This actually does. Needless to say, I didn't get it back. Might have told you that story before. No, you haven't. But I'm very proud of it. Just thinking about a few of the people from New Zealand that we deal with, they're very, uh, a very proud per- people and they, they are very skeptical until they find something that uh, they can run through the paces because we have a few guys that use our packs out there, and before they got them, you know, they're like, well, we'll tear them up, and yeah. with, which they, they hunt year-round, yeah. so they need stuff yeah. that's going to hold up. But Yeah, it's, it's a different type of hunting. They're tough people. They're farmers, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them. They're practical and they're adaptable, and they're used to making things that work. Truly hate you. <laughs> we, you were gone last night. We were working on the presentation for uh, – uh, for the Kalamazoo, because it's, it's an hour-long seminar. and Good Lord, you have to talk for an hour? Is there anybody else with you? No, no. And, um, so it's, I don't it's know what to do, do with it my your, hands. Yeah, <laughs> it's do-it-yourself backpack hunting. So it's diet, nutrition, and then gear and, and you know, uh, meat care or whatever when you're in the field. Not Rome, <laughs> Frank. I know what you're thinking. And, uh, you got to bring a little bottle of Vaseline. Yeah. And uh, yeah, weight saving is important. So... I'm like, you know how Amy is, right? I'm like, Amy, don't interrupt me, and I'll just whatever. That shit ain't happening. She's like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> no questions. <laughs> this block of instruction, hold all questions to the end, damn it. But, yeah, I'm working on that. So that's why I won't be at the show. Otherwise, I'd really want to go. <laughs> but no, I, you, I, you're going to do just fine. It's just, you know, you can just tell, you can tell the guys that do this on a daily basis and all that. And then, uh, versus the guys that maybe get a gym membership six months or three months or one month before their hunt. And, um, you know, that, that's where the difference comes in. No, Clay and I talk about it all the time. He's funny. Cause, um, or Bart or who, you know, some of the different guys, Brian Martin's another one or whatever. He, he, 
at the risk of getting bashed here, you have guys that, that show up that do have a gym membership. And a stair stepper is great in the winter, right? But it doesn't right. get you ready for the off-camber. It doesn't strengthen up your ankles for the off-camber terrain. Uh, it doesn't get you ready for rolling boulders. It doesn't get ready for a lot of stuff where uh, Frank and I here train year-round and we scout. And, well, we just don't like to be at work, so we're in the woods all the time. Right. Good for you. And uh, it is it is good, actually. Frank loves it. No. <laughs> but... uh. Yeah. I'm worried about people listening to the podcast and I'll be talking shit about here. It you can find out super quick in the first day, like in the first hour hiking in on the, a recent hunt I was on. We're all at the tree waiting, right? And this is flat ground, right? And uh, you know, we're the cats in the tree. We're waiting for these guys to come, and it's literally like. What the hell did you do to get ready? It's a cat hunt. This is flat ground, you know? And then you talk about sheep and goat hunts or whatever. It's like, you're going to die. And I, I feel horrible for you because you got to deal with that shit every day all year. Oh, yeah. I know. It's, it's, it, that's, that's it. And, and the thing is, is it's miserable for the, for the hunter. You yeah. know, all, all of a sudden he's not there for a goat hunt or whatever. He is there just, let's get this done. Shoot <laughs> the first one I can get on and end this misery, you know, and, and it, you know, it's disappointing and it doesn't have to be that way. It's like, you know, n- not everyone of course is going to be in your condition and uh, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be to that extreme level, but you have to do something. Now you see them in those spots, they might chew their cut a little bit, but now they're bedded. And they're locked down bedded. I mean, they are now in that rest mode, and they they could be there until that hour before dark or that sweet spot, half hour before it gets light. So you do have that amount of time if you're in a spot that you're consistent with the thermals. And the only way you can learn thermals, there's no book out there. There's no – and every mountain out there that I've been in creates its own thermals, creates its own storm patterns, creates its own thing. Alaska, you know, the Wrangles or the Brooks Range, things like that, those mountains are so big, they create their own weather. Well, in Colorado, Wyoming, these high-altitude stuff that you're doing, you got to be in that drainage. And the reason you're in that drainage with your backpack, walking in with a flashlight, is because you've been there before. Pay attention. So when you're in there in August and you pre-scouted it before season started, I mean, start looking at the when those flowers start blooming and that cotton starts going through the air uh, from the dandelions, even your own little puffer. Just pay attention to what time those thermals are happening. And like I say, the next drainage over from where, like if you bump those deer and they're going to another drainage, you got to learn those thermals all over again. That's the typical stuff, morning what the thermals do, in the evenings what the thermals do in the midday. But they all create their own stuff. So the reason why you get close is because you've patterned that buck, you know his habits, because you've been scouting him. This is what 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 uh, Aaron alluded to earlier. The people that are really like, well, it's National Forest, who cares? Well, they're not the ones that bled. They're not the ones that spend this gas money. They're not the ones eating Mountain House. They're not the ones sleeping in a sleeping bag. Froze their ass off. Froze their ass off. Yeah. <laughs> My they're, personal favorite. So they're, that's, what I mean, we, that's what we mean by bleeding it and earning it. And so when that come, opening day comes along, I already know his habits. I already know the mountain's habits regarding thermals. Now, mind you that by the time I get to where I'm at, from where we started, I mean, we're probably a mile from from where we first got out of the, you know, got out started glassing. So we've moved and moved and moved on them. So I'm sitting there being patient, and and the big ram is starting to feed out from behind the tree. And all of a sudden, I hear something down the canyon. I think, oh, my gosh, there's a truck coming. I'm, so r- I'm running I, to Brian at this point to get above him. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I hear I hear something, and I think a truck's coming, and I look down the hill, and it's a freaking stampede of cattle. Oh, dang. And all the cattle in the valley are running up the wash bed to the Audad full tilt Peterbilt. And I'm like, what in the cat hair is going on? The <laughs> Audad throw their head up, look back. Here comes this whole herd of stampeding cattle running full tilt. And I'm like, oh, crap. I look back down. They're all bugging out. So I take my range finder, and I just range the far bank, and it's 60 yards. I'm like, crap. So I dial my, my bow up to 60. I go ahead and draw. They all run up onto the To me. <laughs> yeah, poor Tim. They run up on the opposite creek bank and stop, and they're standing there. And when they get up on the creek bank, now they can see me. And let me tell you, there is no brush. There's no cover. Everything out there is a half inch tall, grazed down to nothing. And I mean, I'm out. I'm out there just wide open, sticking out like a sore thumb. So, Marty drawn. They come up, they see me, and they're all, all 30 of them are looking at me. And I pick out the biggest ram. He's right on the trail that I ran, so I knew exactly how far he was. So I put the pin on him, and I'm about to squeeze off, and I went, okay, these jokers are on red alert. It's 60 yards. I'm going to put it under his chest like an inch because these things are going to drop like crazy when I shoot. And I shot, and I mean... Not a one out of 30 even flinched. I'm talking about they didn't even <laughs> blink. They just stood there. And I shot right under through all that hair. And then they go running up and they run all over here. So, and I'm like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this crap. We're a little crowded on some of our some of our uh, over-the-counter units these days. Do you guys think that it'll be less out-of-state hunters since you have to buy a small game license now as an out-of-state guy? It's, so it basically bumped up cost what like an extra $85 or so I we talked about it yesterday I don't think it's gonna make a bit of difference but I man we did a podcast about this I got so much hate mail one guy remember that one dude called me a crybaby bitch because I wanted to put <laughs> no. caps on over-the-counter tags uh, what do you think about that yeah. oh dude um I might get called a crybaby by a few people here too but uh we are the no I don't think it's gonna slow it down Frank answer your question um we're the only state um that offers unlimited uh over-the-counter opportunities for elk and in one way i'm you know uh, i'm tickled about that and you know like i don't want to see i don't want to see that in um just for the sake of our sport you know one of the misconceptions that i think that we have here in colorado is I, I was recently at one of our public feedback meetings and, you know, listened to this stat spit out there where I think 15 years ago there were like, I forget, 24,000 uh, over-the-counter archery bull tag, or, you know, archery elk tags sold. And fast forward 15 years later, now we're at 50,000. So Colorado's under the impression that archery and bow hunting is growing. Well, Across the nation, that's not necessarily true. It's stagnant at best and probably falling off. The, the opportunities are tougher and tougher. But when you look at the western states, all of the states that have elk around our borders, New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, 
Wyoming, all of them are draw exclusively for out-of-staters. So uh, for all non-residents, anybody who's putting in for the draw in all those states, well, Colorado's the plan B. It's like if we don't draw somewhere, we're going to go to Colorado and into an over-the-counter unit. Now, I, I think that the, the breakdown that I heard at that meeting, and I think that this is a three-year-old stat, and if I don't have it exactly right, forgive me, but um, it was over 50% three years ago, over 50% of the over-the-counter archery elk hunters were non-residents. Okay? I, I think now, I got the current data a, was 57% or 63 as of today. Okay, now just to put that in perspective, um, in New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, I don't think any of those states allow any more than 20% non-residents to be drawn in their, uh, in their entire draw. And some states like New Mexico, it's like, what, 6% or something like that? Sir, I, man, and Her I don't, Harold had all that. I think it was 3 in New Mexico is what he had, 3%. Yeah. I, I think it's 6% if you go with an outfitter, if you put in with an outfitter. And then 3% if you put in on your own. Um, and so, you know, here in Colorado, it's not like I want to see us go to the New Mexico 6% rule or anything, but there's no doubt we've got some overcrowding issues. And we are the only state around that shows, you know, bow hunting booming like that. And it's just because we're the only option for a lot of people. So rather than have our guys, you know... I'm a firm believer that you have to take care of your residents first, okay? Because the fact of the matter is, I think it's like one in ten bow hunters, I'm not sure about hunting overall, but one in ten bow hunters will ever leave their home state to bow hunt. And a lot of industry people are shocked by that because we're traveling all over the place, but that's the reality, is one in ten will ever leave their home state. So... You've got to make sure that there's opportunities for bow hunters in your in your home state. Maybe we could cap it at like you know 35 percent non-residents, or um, you know based on the number of over-the-counter tags sold last year, we're going to cap it at what would be 35 percent of those tags for non-residents. That will just it will still allow a an ample number of of non-residents to get in on it. You know, but they're, you know, they'd have to set a date um, for the purchase of those over-the-counter with caps tags to non-residents after all the draws are done. So these people have, you know, an understanding of or have some idea of whether they drew anywhere else or not. And then they'd have an opportunity to, you know, to get in line and, and try and get those tags before they're gone. But, you know, at 35%, that's still a heck of a lot of tags out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I have to study the market, right, and, and come to conclusions. Uh, I will, I will say, I think you're spot on. Not not pointing fingers at anybody, but there's a lot of tech, not, quote new technologies out there that are old technologies that somehow that company has found a way to bring into the honey market because nobody'd heard about it before, right? Because we are kind of as a community looking, we're we're still catching up. And it's like, yeah, that was tried 10 years ago and it failed, but they somehow got it back in the market through another company. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, 
buyer beware. That's why I say, you know, don't don't take my word for it. Don't take your word for it. Like I encourage people, go buy a few things, try them out, try them out for yourself, see how they work. You know, um, I'm confident that, you know, that our product or your product in your case will speak for itself. But everybody's got to figure it out for themselves too. You know. Oh, definitely. You know, and um, I I think. Uh... I think that, um, you know, overall, when you, when you say buyer beware, um, Frank uses, Frank, you don't switch is what I'm getting at. Frank finds something that works <laughs> and he, I'm not, yeah. I'm not shitting you. I'm talking about for love or money. He ain't switching. Like, well, you switched those Zeiss SFs. Yeah. Um, and that didn't take a whole lot of arm twist. And we looked at all the optics on the front porch. You like those. And that's, Frank used those. Now, footwear, clothing, it probably ain't fucking happening. Like, it takes a lot for Frank to change a good, solid piece of kit for good reason because you buy so much crap, and Frank, he gets stuff pretty much free now, but how many times did you buy stuff before you got it free and got fucked? Probably, eh, I don't know. I mean, I did, I did a lot of research before. I bought a lot of stuff, but um, yeah, I definitely maxed out a credit card or two on, <laughs> on, <laughs> on getting gear before I worked here, but... Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. I, once I find something that works, it's pretty hard to get me to change. If you listen, we'll fix it. Some people just, they're not fixable. I hate to say, I i know you're a wizard, but there's some people I don't think you can fix. You might help them, but it, from what I've seen, have you seen guys that are just impossible to get back on par? No, and and here's why. I teach the conscious defiance of human nature. That's essentially what I teach. I'm teaching you how to consciously override your central nervous system. I've never had, and there, I have people that have more difficulty with that than others. And that's where the whole natural born shooter comes in. There is no such thing in my eyes as a natural born shooter. However, there are natural born decision makers, right? So if I was to show you something, you would take that instruction and you would use it to its fullest, and you would implement it into your shot. A lot of folks, the folks that are having trouble with the instruction or whatever, are ones that never decide to use it. They are the ones that are expecting it to work for them, right? And, and if you look at their life, they're doing that with almost every aspect of their life, where they're, they're looking for things to work for them and things to help them instead of the only thing I'm teaching folks is how to do it. How do you concentrate? How, what decisions do you got to make? When do you got to make them in your shot and scientifically how to carry them out? If you don't decide to do that, it's all fluff and it means nothing to your subconscious because the subconscious will override it every time. It's like, nah, we don't need this crap. I'm going to brace you for recoil. We're going to be good and you're just going to get more efficient. Yeah, that subconscious is a mother. Um. But it'll if, if you don't know how to consciously override that and you're expecting it to just work for you, nah, that ain't going to happen. You never just automatically find yourself shooting a perfectly controlled shot. We are, as human beings, are not made to shoot stuff. It's not, not natural. No, and I, I, I'm buying off on the majority of that. And, 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 and I think some of, whether it's recoil or not, Target panic can come from the fear of hitting, the fear of missing, 
you can get it from being too good. You can get it from being really bad. And but what what I do agree with you on 100% is the loss of control in your mind for whatever reason gets you into that bad bad place. And I've talked about it before. Uh Matt Davis said it once, it's like Voldemort. <laughs> Just don't say its name. <laughs> yeah. Because I've seen people get target panic that never actually had it until they heard what it was and started worrying about it, and then they got it. Well, it's just it, it's the change of thought process is what it essentially is. Like if if a guy's shooting good and he's on a roll and everything's clicking, everything's doing good, and then somebody starts talking about target panic, right? All you did was change their thought process away from this blank space where they were shooting good and everything was going well but if they don't really know how they were doing it then you're a major victim of your own subconscious even you know even if you're flying double the speed that you were right there then that doesn't make up for that trajectory you know no no and i was breaking all this down for amy because she was kind of going back and forth she's using a single pin Mm -hmm. and and she had asked um santino about hunting with one and I'm like, look, your shit's got to be dialed with a single pin. You've got to be able to shoot, move, and communicate quickly in your brain because if you got it set it at 20 and it comes to 34, yep. you got to know exactly how high to aim. And she's only shooting maybe 240 or something feet per second. And I'm like, you know, right now I would strongly suggest not shooting a single pin or limiting your distance maybe 20 to 30 right. and setting it at 25. Um, cause there's just so much going on and, and that, that arrow drop for that stuff is, is important. Um, it'd be interesting to see. The first year I used a single pin, I had just the exact scenario that you're laying out happened to me. I snuck up on a mule deer. Uh, I was on some rim rock and, and popped up right on top and this buck was bedded below me. And, um, so I, I kind of ranged, you know, this area that I figured this deer was going to come out and everywhere was pretty much about 20 yard shot. So I slid my slider down to 20 yards, set my single pin there. And I just stood there and stood there and waited. And pretty soon I catch movement out to my left. Well, this buck had gotten up out of his bed, walked along the base of the rim rock and squirted out. And now I didn't have time to range him because now he's standing broadside on top of the rim rock, you know, down um, down the rim rock from me. And I figured, okay, it's 30 yards. So I drew back and I just held my 20-yard pin high. I ended up spine shooting him. Um, but had I've had a, you know, cause I was like, I had no reference to gauge where 30 yards was going to be. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, obviously I guessed that it was too, you know, guessed too high, held my 20 pin too high. But for the guys that are out there that are shooting sliders, man, for me, like a three pin, a three pin, um, slider, three pins fixed. And then your bottom pin is your floater. That worked awesome for me. That, that's what I told her if we started hunting or she did that maybe three pins would be best, even two, but you know, depending upon her effective distance, to, that way there's more time the farther out where right. she may have time to move it. And I'm a little bit weird. I shot a seven pin slider. I just got so used to seven that it was actually confusing for me when I had less because for years I shot seven, but that's a lot of clutter for, for most people. But I, I shot pins real well and I didn't have a lot of arrow drops. So as far as holding over or under wasn't as, as big of a deal. And there's guys that are very effective with a single pin. I'm just not, it's not something I suggest to, 
to anyone. I think if you've decided to shoot a single pin, you don't need my advice. You, you know what I mean? If you decided uh-huh. and you're good at it, you don't need to take any advice from me. So. Yeah. I, I think some of it too depends on what you're hunting. Cause if you're, if you're, you know, hunting elk where you know, you're calling them in and that you don't know that shot distance before that shot presents itself, then it lends itself much more to a multi-pin site versus if you're hunting, say, mule deer and you're stalking them in their beds and more than likely you're going to have the time to dial it in and, and take that shot, you know, at a known distance. Adam, I saw a couple on that one ranch that were pretty damn big, but what's the biggest pig you've taken out of that area down there? Uh, man, I caught one, uh, me and my buddy Brian, we caught one two years ago. And uh, the, I've caught bigger than him, but this is the one that I weighed. I actually weighed and I actually weighed him at your house. This yeah, he broke my, my dad. damn scale. Yeah, I broke the scale, <laughs> but he, he weighed 405. Holy crap. Yeah, those, that's a big, yeah. big. Now, are they pretty, how, that Rottweiler, is it a Rottweiler you said? No, he's a, a Catahoula. Okay, which, which one's yeah, the one yeah, you let him? Yeah, the dog is a pit. Is he a mean bastard or is he pretty cool to hang out with in general? Do you just keep everybody away from him? <laughs> no. No, man, my kids can ride him around the yard. Oh, like that's... He's, he's laid back as it gets. Till you get a pig around when, him? When he, hears those, when he hears those other dogs bait up, it's it's game time. Like, he's no bullshit. <laughs> uh, I, don't, you... I don't go very often. I don't go very often with him, Aaron, but a uh, year, year or two ago or something like that, anyway, I went, I run over there to Wes's, and we went, we went hunting one night and, and kicked them dogs out. Well, they go down there and bay a pig up, and Wes is like, grab them two bulldogs and bring them. Well, uh, they are right, really good-natured dogs. Real, They were nice to me, but them bastards drug me to the pig. I didn't leave them. <laughs> that pig started squealing. It was like their BB rolled over, man. It was on. <laughs> for, uh, thanks for joining along, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's going on over in your guys' neck of the woods today? Frank's doing hood rat shit. I'm doing hood rat shit with my friends. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice, nice. What's going on over at Kafaru, Aaron? I seen you were uh, you were actually chasing yard birds with your with your struggle stick. Wait, yeah. Well, hold on. First of all, who can actually call it a struggle stick when you're using it, Aaron? Because literally, you are killing shit like the bubonic plague with that longbow that is just incredible. But you were actually out spotting and stalking turkeys in the snow. What else could you have done to make that any more difficult? I don't know, but it sucked. Um, I mean, it was actually <laughs> technically the one that I killed was on the way to a yard, so it technically was a yard bird. It was on the way to the, I'm sure it was coming up to the feed, right, where all the, ho- you know, they were, whatever, roosted in the bottoms, and then they come up to the, uh, like the right. feedlot, basically. I mean, a lot of people try probably would lie about that, but truly they were coming up to, you know, where all the horses and and uh, cattle. Got cattle and all kinds of donkeys and all kinds of shit. And I'm sure they were coming up there to pick around and feed. So we were catching them on the way, spotting and stocking them there. But I don't. Uh, it it is a struggle. Uh, people get pissed off at that, but it, it does take some a lot of practice. I don't know how many arrows I shoot a day. In fact, I've been having to tape the end of my fingers with Luco tape because they're numb from shooting so much. But it was cool. Uh, I was out there with Jake Downs. He's another uh, stickbow guy, and uh, ended up getting some. So 
anyway. She's coming around. Oh, well, that's what I was leading up to. Oh. She eats. We gave her moose the mm-hmm. other day. And oh, yeah, your mom, she's super cool about it. She just, she said when she was a kid, which is something we should talk about right now, she drove by on her little bicycle and there was a dead deer hanging in the garage. They were cleaning it. Yeah, I think it was and my, it, it was her, it might have been my grandpa or an uncle or somebody. He so. said uncle. Yeah. And it haunted her for life, right? And then there's elk that live around the house and, she, and, and obviously we, we, we took her house from, we didn't kick her out, right? Whatever. But we live in her old town home basically and- there's there's tame deer and elk all over, which is all the wonderful photos you see of mine of giant elk and deer from my front porch, basically. So she kind of humanized them, which is how life works. And obviously my my point here is you kind of want to put your best foot forward as a hunter when faced with a situation like this. Don't be a dumb fucking redneck. Explain how the process works and that. The circle of life. The circle of life. Thank you, Frank. See, Frank doesn't say much, but when he does, it's very important. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, like when he talks about boobies. Um, (laughs) So when you, uh, well, you know, when you're kind of, Faced with that, I don't. We just sat and we talk about it. Yeah, and and, and you're sh- very you have you're very convincing. Even I mean, not that you're not telling what's r- real and what's right, but you have a really good way of explaining it without sounding like a jerk and really making people go, oh, oh, yeah, well, okay, that makes sense. And so I think that's kind of what happened with my mom. Yeah, yeah, it seemed to be, which is you know cool, and and that's happened with a bunch of different people. So you know that's kind of part of this before we get into the funny part of shooting and missing and live, silly bit you know, staying in the blind all day and all everything else that happened is, you know, obviously putting your best foot forward. You know, making sure people understand, as Frank put it, the circle of life, not just in the hunting portion of it, but also the fact, like, kind of give them a conk on the head of hey. If you're going out and eating T-bone steaks or or chicken or fish, that animal had a life too. They've just skipped out the dirty work. Uh, they've just skipped all that and went straight to the fun part, where you know obviously we're we we are actually going out and, and killing that. Or I guess it's the technical word now, harvest. I think no, I get yelled at for. I, would, I don't. I don't ever say harvest. I prefer not. To. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you harvest you wheat, right? Yeah, you don't. If it had a heartbeat, I don't think you harvest it. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think, honestly, after being around all of this for as long as I have now, it's what hunters do, for the most part, is more humane. I mean, obviously, I know that there have been some woundings and things like that, which is terrible. But for the most part, hunting is more humane than what they do in those factories or, you know, uh, what they do to the cattle and the chickens. And that's a horrible life, at least... The animals that you kill have a good life until they die. So, you know, they're out there free and it's not, it's totally different. So, And based upon your focal length, you have a greater depth of field based upon how far back you are from the subject. Um, So I'll set my aperture and then depending on the scenario, I'll set the shutter speed. So typically you want the shutter speed to be as fast as you can be. Um, w- without having any type of grain in the photo, like setting your ISO. So I, I do the same thing. My ISO, re- like during the day, it rarely goes above 400. Like it, sometimes maybe in the shade, it'll go over 400, but um, I run it as low as possible. Um, and then like doing long exposures, obviously you have that shutter speed. It's going to be longer and, and everything on that as well. So, I mean, it's just, you kind of have to take an effect like, what story are you trying to tell 
with how the photo's composed and, and like your aperture. So if you want everything to be in the focus, you're going to have an aperture, let's say, anywhere from, to I think, F8 to F9. That's kind of where I bounce between. But I really, I, sh I shoot a lot in low light. So I'll, I'll take a landscape photo at 2.8 or 3.5. And I don't, I mean, I'd rather get the shot than have it just be super blown out. I was in Banff uh, right before Christmas and at the top of the gondola and they're like, you overlook the city and the city lights uh, were so bright with the cloud cover that I had it at like F9. I don't remember what my ISO was and the, the street lights were extremely blown out on a 30 second. It just looked horrible in the 30 second photo. So I, I dropped it down to F I think 3.5 is what the settings had posted up. So I could run a lower ISO. I think it was 400 or, or something. And, and uh, I actually submitted it at my day job because I haven't fully gone full, full photography full time, but um, it got submitted for like photo of the day or whatever. And getting all these compliments They're like, how did you get it to look good? I said, it, the, the ISO that I think truly the difference between a professional photographer and just like a, if you want to say amateur or hobbyist, is their ISO. And that goes for video and photo. The ISO really, really jacks up your photo. And, and that's kind of where you're going to say, oh, okay, this photo looks extremely clean or this one, you can tell that was an iPhone pick or whatever. Pretty much always been more or less a meat hunter more than anything, even though you've taken some uh, big animals, but your main priority was meat even all the way down to the marmot which i've eaten they're not great uh they are okay though you won't die uh they will keep you alive well, i've eaten porcupine i mean yeah everything is meat if you're hungry enough and <laughs> yeah, i've heard it's a, if, a different rendition of that <laughs> if, you're, if you're dismantling a porcupine do it from the bottom you got to start at the leg or at least that's, that's what I exactly did. right good god it was a lot of work for very little meat yeah uh, did you so but you from the pretty much the beginning though you've kind of crafted uh yeah well i've the only time i've had four course meals in the back countries with you that's where the the packable stoves came in being able to cook i'm uh more of a uh like a what's the word what do you call it my whiz bang uh you make fun of my stove my little uh msr reactor stove because uh, I just boil water and throw it in for more of a, to stay alive and get food down my throat. You actually cook full-on meals that taste good when you're back there. Have you kind of been perfecting that since the beginning? or I mean, it's something that started or something you picked up in the last 10, 15 years? Oh, from the very beginning. I, my whole philosophy is just living well out in the middle of nowhere, not surviving. Uh, so I did it uh, open fire for many, many decades, uh, you know, a, a tarp, an open fire out front for the warmth and for the cooking. And all my pots, of course, were black. Uh, but when I invented the carryable stove and, uh, and the teepees that kind of went together, uh, the pots got a lot cleaner because I started cooking on top of one of my stoves. And then when you... You've tried pretty much everything, obviously cooking on the stove, but you've done uh, 
you had a pressure cooker that was packable, didn't you? For, I still have it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because you've kind of, you, what did you, what was it you called the marmot and uh, Brookies, the, what is it called, Rocky Mountain Fish and Chips? What the hell was it called? Surf and Turf. Surf and Turf. Surf and yeah, Turf, well, yeah. You remember. <laughs> yeah. Life's going for a Monday morning here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had eaten marmot before you had told me you ate marmot, but I wasn't quite as, uh, What's the word? Uh, excited. Excited about eating another marmot. Um, but you eat them all the time or have. I like them. I mean, it's like pork. You got to eat a little one, though. Don't eat the big one. Yes, that's true. <laughs> big ones taste like shit. <laughs> yes. Uh, up through middle size. It's weird with talking about wild game, that uh, the Audan. It's, so the meat is a lot like eating boot leather, um, even the back strap. But the burger... It's amazing. Yeah, the burger's unbelievable, the flavor of it. Uh, I mean, we've been making even moose. The, so we feed our, our dogs raw meat, and little moose likes it more than anything. He won't stop eating it. In fact, he gets pissed if you don't give him enough. And, and so it's been super good, and I can't stress enough the nutritional side of it, though. I mean, especially since you're on here, but I mean— Eating healthy is, I mean, the battle. That is the big one. Well, look at Luke. Luke's fat. How much does Luke train? <laughs> he does a lot. Luke trains like a, a bunch. Gladiator Unleashed Luke. Yeah. And he's pretty fluffy. Now, I'm not saying he probably beats shit out of me, but I mean, he, for as much as he trains, he's like Darth Vader going through the woods. I mean, but he, he says his, his toughest fight of his life is diet remember when he yeah. said that he was like that's the biggest battle i have and oh it's yeah hard i'm to the get same way man i mean <laughs> i mean we were talking about it earlier like if i ate a bunch of shit i'd be huge yeah yeah but yeah well you've got the same body I, type yeah, I, I, have. I eat clean i just eat a lot of food yeah um, and I, I yeah i work out hard but it's like my kind of i've been the same size since like ninth grade yeah Is there like three body types or something in endo a, a, a little of that's bro science but i talked about i had dan on dan's super yeah. intelligent guy but there's a mesomorph endomorph and ecto there's something to that man for sure well i think some of them are or are mixed but some people um skinny people will never be big yeah. big people will never be skinny and then you have assholes like lance cliff and dan um <laughs> right, that are just and josh <laughs> super freaks just freaks and for example, you could probably get skinny. You can. Yeah. When oh, I yeah. say, but you would have to put, it'd be your literally your life, like weighing food, like a, a level of discipline that is certainly not fucking fun. Yeah. And I don't, well, one, I don't want to be skinny, skinny, but like you, well, Frank, you're probably more disciplined. You're more disciplined than me for sure. I've been trying. But I don't think you can get below 180 without really going ape shit. Yeah. Um, I think the... As an adult, the skinniest I've gotten was like 178. Yeah. And that was like decently shredded, but it took a lot of fucking effort. It yeah. was like meal prepping. Yeah. Tons of meal planning. Well, the other thing too is you've packed on muscle. Yeah. And so people, if you're at 13 to 15% body fat, you're pretty shredded. I mean, you're not shredded, but you're in pretty freaking you good pretty shape. pretty strong regardless. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then like you, have you tested yours? Mm-hmm. You should go down to Jessica. What was and get Shannon it Sharp at his, at his uh, like three or five yeah, percent? Fucking and, and well, Rocky, crazy. In Rocky, when he was in the pool, he was so shredded he about drowned. 
because he couldn't, he couldn't no swim. buoyancy. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Sank like a rock. You know, women like women when they get below, I think twelve, they stop having their menstrual cycle. And again, I'm not oh, a doctor, really? so people, <laughs> fuck, I'm just guessing. It's close. I don't want to hear any shit. But yeah, when they get below a certain amount, oh. they can't have their their and they can't get birth or they have trouble getting Perfect. pregnant. Um, <laughs> but uh, where with, are them shredded girls at? <laughs> with with men, I would say any uh, of the body type that's more of the 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 fat kid, like basically like you and I are, you, once you get to that 13 to 15, you fucking got to buckle down to really get below. And yeah. it's, I can't buckle down because I like peanut butter. As far as like throughout the time, which I don't have no idea what this has to do with the podcast. Has she ever been ready to just choke slam you and leave you because of the fighting? Oh, man. Yeah. There's been uh, a few times, especially when like the days when I was fighting and I was cutting weight and like just hangry you know what i mean like ah oh, man don't nobody talk to me nobody come by me i was i was the worst weight cutter ever and when i had to make my weight like two days day before weigh-ins i was miserable and then finally i just would snap on her and probably like me <laughs> quitting chewing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very similar and i would be like you know what just leave me alone and as we got more serious she just kind of knew to stay away from me everybody had to stay away from me but yeah there's a few times where i'm like god i'm sorry babe <laughs> how much uh, how much weight were you cutting typically uh anywhere from 20 on down damn 20 pounds yeah that's which, gnarly which you, is ridiculous in right now oh i think i weighed in two days ago at 196.6 how tall are you five <laughs> five five <laughs> But I saw, yeah, I've been so, seeing you've been uh, you've been hammering down there in the gym in the afternoon. Well, you know, I started evening. I started shooting bows with Aaron again, and I, you know, this guy pops out his jacket and he's like a peacock now. He's like all ripped up. <laughs> he's more shredded than a julienne salad. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, who's this guy? So, um, actually, no, I just you know, it's one of those things when you wake up in the morning, you're like, man, I got to get back and doing it, and I just got motivated, started working out again. You know, I, I take a little time for myself instead of you know training everybody else i need to start training my ass before i got too fat you know and I, I you know i feel so much better i was listening to i was watching uh tom segura's comedy comedy stand-up comedy the other day and he's like uh he's like i was in this hotel room the other day and you know those hotel rooms that have all the mirrors surrounding the in the bathroom yeah and he's like i was hopping in the shower and i said damn somebody has wants to have sex with me i'm fucking <laughs> disgusting I know, right? Yeah, but yeah, I'm not that bad yet. But I was getting there. I'm trying. I've I've been kind of worried about because I put on. I think I'm two eighteen right now, about slowing down. But it hasn't been bad so far. But I've definitely packed on some some size in the last yeah, few it, months. Yeah, you definitely look good. I I mean, no homo, but yeah, I was like, I was impressed. I, was, I made that video of us shooting with Justin, and I was like, oh god, look at this guy. Well, at least you weren't commenting on his dong yeah, like you, you, you were last time. Hey, dude, I've told you, I need, to, I need to get those underwear that he had and those pants. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I live at, you know, about 500 feet elevation, and our base camp was at 14,000 feet. So there's a big difference. I mean, you got to recite your guns. you got to check, check your dope, um, which we did, and we had some time to do it. We were doing some filming and stuff, and just kind of time got away from us, and a big snowstorm came in, so we kind of had to shut it down for the day. But if you're going to hunt with a buddy um, over there, because ibex are a pretty spooky animal, 
um, I would definitely recommend like trying to get together and, and practice that because it, it's tough. And I wouldn't um, recommend having the sh- one of the shooters do the call. Like if you have a cameraman or a spotter, I mean, language barrier is obviously an issue over there. We had a cameraman, um, and what I would have done differently is had Connor actually make the call. Um, and things would have been, went a little smoother, I think. But both killed two um, really mature animals, so it should it should end up being a really really uh, nice film, I think. No, that's cool. Well, what um, you've you've hunted? You shot a, a big stone with uh, Dustin Rowe as well in uh, a couple years ago, didn't you? Yeah, I have. Um, I hunted my stone with Dustin, and then I hunted a doll sheep uh, with the Lancasters up at Nahani. Gotcha. How'd, uh, how'd those hunts go? I, a lot of people in the know know about Dustin Rowe, but as far as Insta-famous, um, you know, Dustin's lacking a little bit in that, meaning he doesn't really get the, um, you know, glory maybe he deserves. Uh, and, you know, I've never hunted with Dustin. I just know him from the shows and talking shit back and forth, basically. But for... There's a lot of fight in that little dog. I mean, I don't think he's more than five six, but that dude—he's a machine. When it, when it, on the mountain, from what I understand, what was it like uh, hunting with him? Yeah, it's. I mean, I've hunted with Dustin five or six times. I mean, I met him. Man, it's been a lot of years um, since he and I've been friends. Kind of before when he was just just guiding. I mean, I met Dustin probably when he was twenty one, twenty two years old, um, and I think I was twenty. 26 7 something like that um and just have done a lot of cool like i hunted a my stone he guided me on my doll a moose i hunted grizzly with them uh mountain goat black bears um but he he's the type of guy that makes it fun and has there's there's no quit in him so the cool thing for me is like you know growing up on the east coast like i didn't have any expectations when i kind of started backpack hunting so he's like you, you know what I mean? He puts everything else back and goes. And so that's how I learned. Um, and so like the tough, tougher style hunts is kind of what he helped me understand and how to do. And I had no idea, like there was easier ways to do it, but that's what makes him so successful is, you know, there's no quitting him. Um, and he just has an unbelievable ability to find animals. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, no, and I've heard, you know, that about him. Um, how big that stone was um pretty dang nice i mean what how what that thing ended up scoring uh he made awards he was uh right at 164 um after the 60 day drying period which you know i'll probably never hunt another stone sheep so it's probably it'll probably be the best animal that you know as far as my lifetime goes i mean and he'll even tell you to this day that's probably the hardest stone hunt that he ever did i mean we walked um 48 miles I think on that hunt in five days. Yeah, that sucks. So, and, and like, that was the first sheep hunt I ever did. So, like, <laughs> I, you know, I just thought that was normal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How much longer did you do the the doll hunt with the Lancasters? Um, I think I killed my ram on the sixth day with them. That's an amazing, I mean, you've been up there. The Northwest Territories is absolutely amazing. Um, I shot the 28th legal ram that I looked at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, Nahani has been cut down in size, but it still produces what they have left still produces some insane animals of it. You hunted it before it got hacked away by, by uh, you know, whatever the I don't know actually actually how that worked other than the government did it. But um, how big was that doll? Uh, right at 160. Yeah. Which 
I didn't know until I got up there hanging out with Clay that um, what a 160 doll actually means. You know, they're not <laughs> they're not the most common thing in the in the world until you start looking at a lot of them and, and learning how to score them. A 160 doll is a, a damn good doll. Yeah, and there was a ram that we um, was actually an older broom ram that we saw the second day um, after we got dropped off that scored actually they ended up shooting it um later in the year that scored a little bit better but like you know to me i was like i'm probably only going to get here once and i wanted to i wanted to hunt more um it was funny because we'd called uh clay on the sat phone he was like you guys are crazy like why aren't you <laughs> he was like you know why why don't you shoot that sheep and i was like i didn't want to you know i didn't want to be done on the second day so and my, my stone um, was broomed on the one side, so I really wanted to shoot like a tipped-out ram like you see traditionally from the territory. So that's what I just wanted to hunt until we could find the biggest one that we did. The chess pieces of the outdoor industry and how people get shuffled around. It's almost like draft day sometimes and free agents and who gets paid what. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, as far as the, the monetary stuff, it's pretty wild how it works, but that's a totally different podcast. It is, but when that day comes, you know, what I realized this season is that I'm actually the perfect hunt athlete. So you wouldn't think so if you saw me, and especially if you saw me with my shirt off, but basically the way that the hunting season's built and the way that my body is built, are they go perfectly hand in hand. Because it starts out, sheep season for us in Alberta, you're just climbing, so it's all about legs. Well, that's my strength, right? I can, I can climb and I can carry heavy stuff, so I... I get going, and we don't have a ton of elevation, so my legs are sweet. Well, that trains up my lungs, which is great because next comes elk season. Elk season is all about lungs. You just run in, and there's lots of, you know, generally a little bit more elevation, faster pace, and then your lungs are good. Well, in that time when you're taking a break, trains up your eyes. Well, that's good because next come mule deer, and you're looking, and you're glassing, and you're becoming, you know, you're dialing your way in, and that gets you used to sitting still, which is great for whitetails, and whitetails is all about heart. I mean, people talk about heart when it comes to the mountains and the backcountry, but when it comes to all, you're, you're doing an all-day sit in the ground blind, like, there's, that's another level. That's passion, right? And then after that, your heart's good and your blood's flowing great, which is important because it's waterfowl season, and waterfowl season's all about that liver. And, then, and, and that brings me back to my other strong suit and my Canadian origin, and that gets me the whole way through the season. So whenever we're talking about that free agency, I, I am. I, I would argue that I'm basically the prototype for hunter fitness. So uh, I'm out here. Man, that's that's solid wisdom right there. Um, I gotta say, the you're right though. With I, I'm not a duck hunter, but the problem with the good thing about whitetail season is at your peak fitness level before you sit in the stand, because it's going down the shitter quick the moment your butt hits the stand. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of. Um, you know, not a lot of daylight, so there's a lot of, you know, camp time, which means there's a lot of food time. And then, uh, you know, when you're sitting in the tree stand and you're bored, Frank, you might be worse than I am. I'm not sure. You kind of have a problem with eating everything at one time. Yeah, cereal. Cereal and pizza. I have a box of cereal at home. It's, like, gone in probably two days. I can't eat. I can't. I'll eat an entire, like, that big uh, Brady Bunch size thing of Raisin Bran. I'll eat it all and crap out a baby's arm the next day. It's bad because I'm not used to it. Then I eat it, and then it's like it's it's literally like a it's like Drano coming down the pipe. It's bad. Like it's not good in the tree stand. I can tell you that. There's a couple times where I just couldn't get down in time. It was rough. 
every year in hunting season, I'm like, this is the year that I'm going to start being fit, like forever. You know, I'm going to be like a, one of those fit people. And then white tail season comes, and like at the end of October, I'll be like, you know, running around, like chasing late season sheep, and then jump down and jump up in that tree stand. And by the end of November, it's like climbing into a tree stand becomes like Everest. You're wearing a couple extra layers and you've been eating nothing. (laughs) That home-cooked goodness. We drove. We flew in. Me and Drew flew in all the way from from Denver to Seattle, ran into the car. From Seattle, we drove all the way up to, I don't even know, 14-hour drive. Kamloops. Kamloops. We stayed a night in Kamloops, closed down the bar. Almost got in a fight there. (laughs) Drew almost got in a fight there with a red coat. (laughs) And then uh, we... I don't think guys realize what they're getting into when they pick a fight with you guys. Here's they the don't thing. just look at the ears. Like, isn't that like a, a true sign? Of, I know, but like, just look the, at the ears. Like, oh, Shad probably shouldn't fuck with here's this dude. Here's the thing: me and him were sitting at this local bar, having in, eating our wings, having fun, having beers, and this guy behind <laughs> us is kind of like eavesdropping us, right? Is he by himself? Yeah, and I was like. Hey man, you can come join us. Like we're in a good mood. We're going to bear camp, you know. Like we're all happy, and this guy just wants to start degrading America <laughs> and making us feel stupid, right? I mean, that's pretty much it. He thought he was going to give yeah. us a history lesson on how all the wars went down, <laughs> <laughs> and Drew was not having that at all. <laughs> I, I I literally had to quit drinking because I, I was like. Drew, let's just go back to the hotel room. Man, let's go. <laughs> it, it was bad, huh, Drew? It was, uh, yeah, he was like nicely insulting us like we wouldn't catch it. Yeah. But I, I was sat there and I was, you know, I was super happy drinking with my buddy and listening for a while. But, you know, what got me was when he said Russia, <laughs> Russia won World War II. <laughs> and, and and then I lost my shit. And I was just like, dude, I can't I can't listen to your bullshit no more, man. I'm done. And and then I was like, I gotta get away from you. So I go to leave and the guy what did he say? Hey, hey buddy, how about a hug? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do in Canada. I guess they hug it out, man. Not not in America. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was ready to drag that dude out by his neck oh it was bad it was bad <laughs> i was like oh god let's just go because i want to go on and i don't want to go to jail <laughs> that, yeah, that would have been one. a short ending to the to the bear trip <laughs> yeah uh thinking of have you guys ever seen yellowstone the series i watched a few episodes yeah the one where the asians are out in the field and the grizzly's there and he pulls up he's in his dually right and he pulls up and there's a tour bus and it's on his land and all these asians are in the field and there's a grizzly and he gets out of his truck. He's like, what the fuck? And he grabs his lever action and he gets out and he goes to the tour guide and he's like, hey, get out of here. And the lady's like, oh, he looks friendly. And he looks at the bear. He's like, well, he's not. And they're not moving. And he pulls his, uh, he's like um, cattle, uh, he's the c- cattle ranching commissioner. Mm-hmm. And he pulls his badge out and he's like, hey, you're trespassing. Get off my land. And then the, one of the older Asians starts yep. and he's like, uh, they're, he's like, he doesn't believe you. You know, because he's like, what the fuck did he say? He doesn't believe you. He says this land should be shared by all. So he just starts firing rounds in the air. <laughs> and all these Asians are hauling ass back to the bus. And the one dude's stuck under the fence. And he's like, this is America. We don't share our land. Like, <laughs> yeah. Reminded me of that. But <laughs> you never seen Yellowstone? Uh-uh, oh, I Jesus, you got to watch it. I got to watch it. <laughs> yeah, that's my plug for Yellowstone. We get 37 cents of you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is good, but definitely donate to Patreon. Oh, thirty. Oh, that's shit. good. Yeah, 
Frank, oh, man. you have nothing to say? <clears throat> I've never watched Yellowstone, no. Mm-mm. Come on, man. <laughs> you got to watch it. Yeah. Kevin Costner, man. It's is good. that who it is? Yeah, yeah it's good. It's That's really funny. good. Way better than I thought it'd be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> you guys are missing out. It is good. Fuck you guys. So, <laughs> yeah. Come on. So what about, it was like, what, 10 hours later and you guys got to, uh, finally got to bear camp, huh? Yeah, well... Thank God. We'll we... say Lander's bad with uh, estimating how long it's going to take with time. I think he told you yeah. guys from Seattle it was going to be like 10 hours. It ended up being like, well, like 16. Yeah, it, it, believe it or not, it is a significant difference in penetration. Out of our stick bows, out of a uh, recurve, it is a significant difference. And I don't say that to sell arrows. If it wasn't, I mean, I th- enough folks have called and talked to me would know that I just don't, I just don't BS that way. It's just not how I work. And I will tell you, it is a big difference. They're like 30%. Nope. Nope. What, what do you think? Maybe a hundred and two hundred. Oh, per increase. Oh geez. It's unbelievable. Cause I, I, I kind of tried to, I don't know what you want to call it, run some redneck testing to figure out like, uh, the difference, right, of how much more penetration you get from one to the other and everything else. And as near as I could tell, as far as total penetration and in inches and different things, um, 30% was about the most I could ever come up with. But you think it's right. you think it's more than that? You think it's like double I penetration? Do. Yeah. I, I do. I think well, it wouldn't be double. It would be more like quid triple. No kidding. So here's how. I, here's, here's what I can tell you. I, I when we first did all when we first started testing, and this is back when we were first. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of vehicles to test with, so we used a treated tube system, <laughs> which was a pretty good test for many things. And you can take a standard diameter arrow, and we shot all of our target arrows into the same thing. And so you know, a, a, a 23, the point may go out the other side, maybe uh, a magnum. You know, a big 27 series arrow, probably not because of the friction, right? It's, it's dragging on the arrow. And then you get down to a 1964, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, man, I, I'm through that treated two by six, six inches. That's pretty cool. Or four inches. And you get a rampage. Like, Woo, that's a foot. And then you get a deep impact. Then it goes all the way through it. You're like, what in the world just happened? Grab it. Shoot again, like whoa, all the way through again. And you shoot it, you go whoa, all the way through again. And that's just the truth. And and to me, the whole reason is you have an outsert that's much bigger than the arrow. And obviously, now we're not talking about a broad head hitting bone, hitting all the internal matter, creating friction and slowing it down. You're just talking about a field point, and then you have nothing after that except for arrow. And so. There's no friction till you get to the veins. None. Take a bear shaft and, and it just keeps shooting through the it just keeps shooting through until it gets sideways and, and breaks or hit the target sideways or the target falls over or something goofy. But it was incredible. And if you have any deep impacts laying around, it's a pretty good testament. So I tried it with this is why we came up with the instinct. Um, I picked up a trad bow for, I don't know what it was, two years ago, three years ago. 
I met the guys at Stryker at the ATA show. Really like Rick a lot. I mean, great family, great kids, just super good guy. And I bought one of the takedowns because I wanted to try tread. I mean, it's cool. Uh, I was always a compound shooter. And I got it late in the season. And, and so I was shooting late in like April or May, and I had a bear hunt in June uh, in Saskatchewan with my son DJ. And so I had vintage, and I was trying everything. I ended up shooting a vintage 600. I, was, I shoot 58 pounds at 30 inches. And a 600 flew the best, probably because I was just a hot mess in what I was doing, but it flew the best. No big deal. So I took a vintage, and I shoot a single bevel, got on contact broadhead, and I shot a bear at 27 yards and hit him probably a little bit far back, but it was a pretty hard cording away. It came out his front shoulder and went through the bear. Bear went 20 yards, died. Anybody knows bear hunting. They're not like a super tough animal anyway, so don't think, oh, man, that's incredible because they're just not very tough. And so I get back home, and I've got a moose hunt in September. And I'm practicing, and I'm practicing in my McKenzie, and my arrows are going in like four inches. I'm like, this sucks. This can't be good because I'm used to shooting a compound and, you know, going to the label or to the veins. And I'm like, golly, how am I going to kill a moose? And so I'm like, I got to come up with something. And that's where the instinct came in. And my penetration out of a recurve doubled. And so when I shot that moose at 30 35 or 37, I can't remember which one it was, all on film. Someone's got it, but that doesn't matter either. Like, relax, have a fucking sense of humor. It's okay to laugh about things. You know, we get guys all the time that talk shit to us, and, and we expose our page. But, I mean, I don't know if you saw the post last night, but we had a guy uh, talking shit to us because apparently we're considered the Midwest, even though we're in the Black Hills and we're a mountain time, but he was talking <laughs> shit about us being Midwest hunters and we don't know shit about Western hunting and wilderness hunting. Well, I fucking, you know, we love holding guys accountable on social media. It's great. So I fucking posted his comment um, on, on, on our fucking page, and we just had dudes eating this guy fucking alive. Um, because, I mean, we're it's just, it's it's funny because, like, we're just, it's, so many companies just take that shit, and we're just not going to do it, man. We're just not going to do it. And if you don't want to buy a quality, good, fucking American-made piece of gear because we're no bullshit, like, that's on you. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to hurt our feelings. You know, we'll get over it. Trust me. It's it's not that big of a deal. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just one of those things to where so many guys are, are, are so worried about, you know, that, that small stuff. And we just, we like poking fun in the industry a little bit because it is kind of funny, but, uh, I mean, we get it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you probably get hate mail and we get hate mail too. And, but I mean, we, we actually find more support, um, <laughs> from these podcasts and doing everything. And we get, get more guys on board with us. Cause they're like, you know, they're the no bullshit guys, you know, they think it's hilarious. Um, you know, and then there's just going to be guys that they take everything to fucking heart on social media and they get fucking all whiny about everything and get their feelings hurt. And, you know, it is what it is. You can go to some other company page where they're blowing smoke up your ass and tell you what you want to hear all the time. And, and uh, you can get a piece of shit product. The mountain, it was slicker than shit. And, you know, it's pissing rain, like just uh, raining to beat the band, like just pitchforks and crackheads. I couldn't. I mean, really, like nothing was dry. So anyway, we were we're getting down pretty close, and I knew we were, you know, within thirty, 
and uh uh you know adam was um you know within a few feet of me and i'm like man get ready to range it because yeah we both had range finders but i was like man get ready to range it and he kind of looked at me funny which in about two seconds i figured out why i heard and i'm like oh shit we're we're less than 30 we're less than 20 they were over the the knob right so i was like oh shit and i said all right wait 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 and um you know so i i, I started the approach and i had my boots on it didn't matter it's super quiet and i had full-on rain gear too but it was it didn't the noise of the rain gear didn't matter it was raining that hard so i crouched down and uh started kind of duck walking up and and so did adam but actually i just stroke of bad luck adam got picked off because the you know they were just i don't know if they were fighting or what but the the big one charged up the hill and spotted adam and just blew out now you know keep in mind i'm still duck walking my fat ass up to this knob to shoot him you know i got about two yards to go and i hear adam go fuck we're busted so i i, I took that last step and looked up and you know, there was the, the badger, he was 12 yards maybe away. Um, and the other one was, you know, running and gunning and hauling ass. And the, the one was looking at him, probably trying to figure out why he was running. And so, you know, 12 yards, I, I uh, you know, drew back and um, pretty much, I mean, I thought smoked it. I hit it good. I mean, uh, the exit hole from that thing with that, that prototype head was, let's say it's my fist, but it, it took off. Uh, down the alpine and i uh i reloaded and it, it's a miracle at like 38 40 42 i'm not 100 percent sure i got a another arrow off and uh uh was able actually I, I i pretty 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 damn good shot on that arrow and uh you know went just like 20 more yards and kind of rolled up and i thought okay it's good and so we got down this steep portion because uh, I didn't want to knock an arrow on that and you know, stab myself in the eye. So anyway, we got that steep Porsche. We got on more or less flat ground, and I knocked an arrow and, and hooked up and just started step by step by step. And I got to, I don't know, 14, 16, 20 yards, uh, and that thing woke up and was not fucking happy. Um, the It, like, looked at me and just... <laughs> And uh, started growling like crazy and started coming. And uh, I heard Adam, you know, put a round upstairs. And I was like, oh, shit, I better shoot this before he does. And I put a third arrow into its chest at mm, like six, eight steps. And uh, that one did it in. And so that, I whatever, that was the that was the story of the Wolverine. And uh, it was super cool other than we had to climb out of that hole where we shot it. But I, I, I didn't realize I thought. It was pretty rare. I, I didn't think many people had done it. As, it. as it sounds, from all the messages I got, uh, Dave Windauer, I think, did it. Um, he gave up a moose tag, actually, to shoot his, like, in the 70s or 50s, a long time ago. And uh, and uh, a guy on a loan did it, uh, hit it with an arrow and killed it with an axe, I think. I haven't seen that alone, which which is cool. I mean, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people, did you eat it? I did not eat the Wolverine. Um you know, one guy tried to, uh, he's playing like he was actually asking a real question. He said, did it fuel my ego or did it taste good or something? I don't know. But as far as that goes, I, I really don't want to deal with that kind of dumb shit and questions. Look, if if you, I totally get it. If you uh, eat what you kill, I mean, if you kill a mouse at the house, do you eat that? 
you know, if a coyote eats your cat and kill a coyote or you eating a coyote, the fish and game department, uh, who we hope know their jobs, right? They're biologists. They um, have tags that are given out for the different predator species, wolverine being one of them, meaning they feel that the population is high enough that humans, when possible, can harvest or kill one of those to help the population or, or keep it an even keel, help the balance. And if that's the case, I'm going to take full advantage of that. And I, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to eat that specific animal. The biologists um, are the ones that have dictated that it is needed or it is okay. And I am fine with that. Um, obviously, I was raised in a different time, space, place, uh, than, than others. I got many messages from people that told me they would never kill an animal they can't eat. One, I think you're full of shit because if you hit something on the side of the road with your car, are you eating it? Have you finished your plate every dinner? If it's shrimp, steak, whatever, if it was an animal and you didn't finish it and you threw it away, that is kind of like wanton waste. That's like not taking all the meat off the animal. You are wasting that meat. You know, you find a lot of the weaknesses and strengths with different steels and broadheads and arrows. Not just, you can't just test one way, in my opinion, anyway. I, I, I've i had um, some arrows bouncing off like the stomachs of 3D targets uh, snap in half much easier than others compared to direct impact and, and vice versa. So it, it's, it's, I don't want people to, you know, I just want people to think when they're looking at different testing and, and how valid or how solid and how in-depth that test was. Um, you know, in the case of like, when you have me test something, you know, you're wanting me to test it for months and shoot, you know, 10, 15, 20 animals. And I'm just one person in comparison to somebody coming out with something and firing it into ballistic gel, that doesn't really, you know, do the, it justice. And when you start comparing steels, um, you know, you do get a lot of, uh, what's the word? There's pros and cons to everything. And one of the cons to a steel that, that I personally like for a knife, and uh, I'm kind of finding out more and more and more is, it shatters um, on impact, and it's it's S30V, and I really like S30V steel. What I don't like is, you know, I encourage people, fire it into a leg bone. Um, fire it into a, a raw brick. They, they, they have a tendency to, to explode, um, and I don't know what your findings are on that. Um, you know, if you kind of, I, I know you're kind of a stickler on the A2 for that reason, it seems like. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to go with the stainless blade steel originally for the broadhead. And in fact, I, I did start that way. I went through five different steels. And, um, you know, the problem with stainless steels, S30V, um, I've tested that one along with a couple other ones. In order to be stainless, they have a high chromium content. They have greater than 13% uh, chromium. And it just reduces the mechanical properties because of that. And then when you get them, when you get them hard enough to have a good edge, hold a good edge, and it become brittle. And and what I was seeing is, um, you know, they're okay um, for a lot of hits, but if you hit like a heavy bone impact, especially slight impact, I was just snapping them off. And that's why I went to um, more tool steels, impact steels, and, and settled on A2. Um, I used S7 for a while and then and A2. And, and S7 and A2 are the two steels used in metal pan, 
metal stamping dies and punches. Um, A2 is generally in the dies where it's cutting metal. And it just, you know, it just can take that impact. It can be hard and sharp and still take an impact. And that's why, that's why I settled on that. And yeah, I've tested even recently. I'll, I'll still buy broadheads and we do a, a blade strength test recently bought some other blades that were uh, a stainless and, and check those out. And yeah, when I, when I do this break strength test, I start doing this, this bending to it and it just kind of explodes. Um, and there's, you know, dust cloud, um, just to have a brittle failure. So, you know, that's the reason that eight for a two, um, and you know, the negative there is it can get, it can get, uh, rust spots sooner. Um, uh, we did, we did corrosion testing, this industry standard, um, corrosion testing and found, it took the same number of days as stainless before we had, you know, pitting occurring, but it can get some surface spots sooner. So, you know, if you're out in the rain and you're hunting in the rain for multiple days, um, you just gotta dry them out. Um, we can apply some blade oil even to, uh, make sure they don't corrode. But to me, the, the mechanical performance, um, of this tool steel just way outweighs uh, the negatives when you compare it to stainless steel. Tell me the tell me the uh, the most difficult, most rewarding blood trail or eye opening blood trail you've ever been on. Mm, been on a few. I'll, I'll tell you the one of my own, which um, I'll just flat out say it. I shot a bull. Um, you know, I shouldn't talk. Whatever. My dumbass moment. Shot a bull cornering to me at eighty yards at full bugle, right between the neck and the shoulder. Um, Shooting a light arrow, uh, accuracy wasn't an issue, hit it right where I wanted. This is one of those moments where I never shot a light arrow again. I got about 12 inches of penetration, so I hit a lung. Um, bull bedded down, you know, ran off, bedded down. It was coughing up some lung blood. Um, I knew bulls could live off one lung forever, and I knew there was a good chance this bull probably was going to. Of course, I got shit running down both legs. It's a 350 bull. Um I pivot around, and uh, I think the bull, it's bedded in grass, think it's broadside, put a second arrow in it, another shot I shouldn't have taken quite far. Um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous it's going to get away. I'm not making the best judgment calls, and this all comes from experience. Put another one in, the same lung that's already popped, which sucks, and the guts. Decent penetration, but I'm like, okay. Assess the situation. Um, I, I didn't hit liver. Um, I hit the same lung twice and I got stomach the bulls going to die. How much, you know, how quick, whatever. So initially I rushed the blood trail like an idiot and, uh, find big pool of blood, lung blood in a bed. And, and I, I pushed it out of the bed and, you know, the bull's going uphill, um, which is not good. Right. And I <laughs> like, okay, this sucks. I may not find this thing. And that's that night we pull out, come in and the next morning we're on blood cows get back with this the herd bull and we're having trouble tracking it we're having trouble finding blood we come back out and we're sitting at camp and i'm like man that bull has 18 inches of one arrow and 12 inches of another that bull is dead we got to go back in there right and and uh i'm looking at a gps for a, a death run it's not following that which they do that a lot where you can find you know kind of grid on a general line that you've you've either marked or you know, figured out an azimuth or, or a GPS has told you. And we're on hands and knees and, and things are looking desperate. And uh, we cross a log, no blood on one side. I happen to look back at my buddy and there's blood on the back of the log, right? Where he stepped over it. And 
you know, we're talking, this is hours into this, right? Where, you know, the never give up mentality. I'm starting to think about this is just not going to be a good outcome. And uh, blood on the back of it. I mark it and I'm like, dude, let's look around, see if we can find more blood. If not, let's just start gridding right here. This bull cannot live. It's got to be dead around here. We start gridding out and my buddy actually, I hear him screaming. He, he found the bull. Now, you know, it's rewarding because we found it. Really, what's the most rewarding is I learned more from that specific, not just about blood trailing, also about being a dumb shit, um, from that specific blood trail um, than, I, than I had on probably all other ones combined. Because honestly, I hadn't had the blood trail that much because just about everything died when I hit it, right? It died quick. Um, now, fast forward, you know, you get, you hunt with guys that can't shoot that well. Well, you become a really good blood trailer. You, you hunt with guys that can shoot pretty good. You probably aren't going to be that good of a blood trailer. Um, you know, so that was one where I learned, you know, about being a dumb shit, taking shots I shouldn't, about pushing animals, when to push, when not. You know, I, I uh, another one, my my tall buddy Jay uh, took a shot. I'm simplifying this story because it was quite comical how all of it panned out. He comes out of the woods, dude, super religious, never cusses, right? Just Great guy, one of my best friends. He's he's like six nine, right? He looks like Big Bird. Comes out of the woods. I fucking got him. I got one. And I'm like, he's cussing. He must have hit one. And he's like, I'm like, where'd you hit it? He's like, I have no idea. I think I hit it in the neck. And I'm like, what? I'm like, the neck's a big, you know, it's kind of a big target. Where at? He's like, I don't know. And I get up on the blood, and I'm like, dude, you sure you didn't hit it in the liver? Now keep in mind, now it's it's dark. I think I hit it up in the neck and I'm looking at the blood and I'm like, man, it's bleeding really good. And, you know, next thing we know, we kind of figure out that he hit, probably hit it in the front of the leg's neck and just cut a wide open gash across the front of it. So in my... Hang on a second. Now explain, explain that to me. So he hit it with a mechanical. Um, It went Uh across the front of the legs straight across it through all the meat below the neck above the legs and just ripped through it we could kind of tell how it was standing so you know i i um in in my opinion in certain situations if you have a one lung hit depending upon the terrain or a muscle hit but it's a big muscle hit you're almost better to push the animal to keep it bleeding to try and get another arrow in it because other than that, you're probably never going to find it because it's not a mortally wounded animal. Now, I'm going to get flack from this because guys are going to never push an animal. We're not talking TV where you shoot it in the stomach and they let it lay overnight and go get it the next day or a double lung hit, but they're not sure, and let's let it sit overnight. This is an animal that we're eight miles deep in the wilderness in thick bear country with coyotes in an area that... We have a good idea if we leave it and do find it, it'll be eaten by the next day. The chances of us finding it are slim unless we push it and we're in deadfall, which is the animal is showing is tearing out that hole more and more. It's going through deadfall. We're two physically fit guys. We can go as far as needed. I said, hey, let's push this thing. Let's just give her all we've got. I'll run this fucker down. He's like, dude, it's going straight downhill through deadfall. And I'm like, yeah, and it's tearing it open. And I think we can get it's bleeding so much. I think it's going to either heal up and we're going to lose it or we just keep this thing open and it's going to bleed enough to where eventually it's going to lose a third and it's going to get dizzy as hell and we're going to get another shot. Let's follow it, dude, or I don't think we're going to find it. Now, a lot of people would argue with that. 
but that's that was my opinion, and that's what we did. I threw both headlamps on my head and looked like a fat spider monkey flying down the mountain, like just pushing this thing through timber. It eventually, no shit, 2 o'clock in the morning, it sounded like a grizzly. It was bedded up. It had bled so much. We go up to it, put a second arrow in it. We found it, and sure as shit, it skidded right across the front of the legs, had just an inch and a half deep cut straight across the chest leg area. It bled out from a muscle wound. That one I learned a ton from because I don't think, one, we would have found it, and it's kind of know when to hold them, know when to fold them. I th- a lot of people would argue it's what we did, but that's happened on four different animals. One was a one lung hit animal that we were able to push it enough to get it weak to get a second shot. But you have to know when to do that. Yeah, so that pack out was fun. Um, I, so I was using that small musket. This people, Someone asked uh, to go over pack options for an elk hunt. Under normal circumstances, I wouldn't have been using that small of bag. Um, <laughs> the only reason why I brought it the first couple of days is because uh, you and Dave were there. So, you know, three guys on an elk would be – that would be more than sufficient of a pack. But – um, we got it all out. Yeah, I mean I, that pack was loaded to the brim, and I just had day gear, which w- which ended up being like a puffy jacket. Um, another, I had the uh, I had our puffy jacket. I had the Sitka active jacket, uh, and then just a kill kit, uh, possibles pouch, and then some food. And that's all I had in my pack. And then in the lid, I had my camera. So that left a that left the majority of the room for the pack. And then you had the big bag. You had the new Ma Deuce bag. Yeah, and I didn't have shit in it other than a lot of elk when we came out. But I don't know that we had – well, you had the head, so you got screwed there. I can't imagine. I probably had a 100 and a bit, and then you probably had just under a 100 or just over in meat, and then had probably had 140 with the fucking Because <laughs> <laughs> so, Amy asked whose pack was heavier. I'm like, well, my pack was probably heavier, but he had to carry that head, so he had more weight. Oh, that sucked. Yeah, we um, – we, we probably could have strapped the head to the top, but we were like, yeah, screw it. You know, we're, we just want to get out. I don't out. know if that would have panned out. Yeah. That looked like that whatever. The whip snake. Out, the whip snake, yeah. Yeah, the pack looks a little bit ridiculous. The story, I got a ton of comments because uh, I said, dude, your pack looks like the tip of a dog's wiener. Cause it, was, <laughs> the, it did, the, too. <laughs> it really did. The game bag with the meat was sticking out of the top, and it was red. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a bit top-heavy, you know. Was, those videos were pretty funny of us getting the packs on. You got yours on pretty easily, and I had a little bit of a struggle. But you had a top weight. Yeah, it's a problem because Amy was asking. I'm like, when it's top heavy like that, it just flips over and crushes your head. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. So, so we tried to we tried to put the elk head on top of the pack, and I just held the antlers and trying to balance like that was, gosh, was a little bit impossible. So we got out of the aspens, got into that into the meadow there, and. It kept falling off, so I was like, screw it, I'll just carry it by hand. And yeah, I couldn't believe you made it carrying it up front like a baby. <laughs> oh, good Lord, that was my arms are still sore from that. But I kind of like had my elbows against my body, and then the antler was like right in the, the elbow cr- pit. Yeah, the elbow pit, and then I held the front tines, and that was kind of a, a solid way of holding it. Look for anything out of the ordinary. And, um, you know, and so to go back to your military reference, yeah, you have to be, you know, I like to say athletic and nimble and all this stuff, but then you also have to build a system that's deftly quiet. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I was more than a little amazed at, at how close you were getting. And if I ever thought I wanted to hunt with a stick, I, I probably, 
you probably dissuaded me because I'm like, yeah, fuck that. I don't want to get 10 yards from here. Um, that's just too much work. Um, 20 yards is probably fine for me. But, you know, my, my big success um, was, you know, I wore my, you know, full Apex system uh, the whole time. But, you know, I had synthetic base layers. But then I'm a huge fan of Windstopper. I think it's one of the most underutilized technologies. And I'm a huge fan, especially when it's that windy and cold. Uh, even if I'm sitting in a whitetail stand or, or uh, you know, big game hunting is I'm a fan of double wind stopper. And so um, it's a little counterintuitive what I do, but I had my lightweight base layer on and then I immediately put a uh, wind stopper mountain vest directly on top of that. So that kind of protects my core. And because I wear it so close to my body, where it's the warmest in that system, it pushes the moisture through that thing like super easy. Like I don't even, I don't even think twice about it. And then I was able to go um, Apex hoodie, Calvin Active hoodie. And most of the time I was good with that. But then when it really got cold those last couple of days and started really blowing and snowing, I think both you and I, uh, Aaron, use that Traverse Cold Weather hoodie. And that thing was like clutch. And because I had Windstopper underneath, even though that Traverse Cold Weather hoodie isn't Windstopper, it's super quiet. So I bury the Windstopper in my system, and then I have that quiet thing on the outside. And, uh, you know, that seemed to be a pretty good system. And then on my bottom, I had windproof, we'll call it windproof boxers, core lightweight, and then my Apex pants. Because you have to have them. I mean, you have to have something that flipping quiet. And that's the real challenge is to make that balance Frank, how long did you sit on that last buck? Not to not to jump to the last day, but how long did you sit on that buck? I think Landers said two to two and a half hours or so. Yeah, it was two and a half hours. I don't know why I'm asking you. You were probably so cold you didn't even know what the hell you were doing. <laughs> but I, we, in in the comfort of the truck, I I timed you at two and a half hours without <laughs> without even your boots on, and I'd been on a buck for two hours, you know, earlier that day, and uh, man. I mean, if you want to have, you know, it's, it's kind of, what do they call it? Level, level two fun. Um, <laughs> you want to have some fun out there and be successful. You, you have to figure that shit out because those animals will not give you a second. They won't give you a second chance. This, this stuff goes into, and, I, and I, we say all this because there's some serious issues where these people and fish and game, Whenever they target people like us, these are all the details that they're looking at and trying to find. Because when we film everything, obviously we have to do everything down to the exact books. Because and we film it all. We put our life out there and say, okay, guys, just – and we don't do this for fame or anything like that. I mean, my God, I mean, we put everything on YouTube for free. You know, we Sarah and I don't make hardly any money in the hunting industry. And it's we just do it. I could speak 100%. You lose money in the hunting industry because you lose so much business from from the supplement right. side. Uh, I get a kick out of that. Guys are like, I do get, I mean, in my own fault, a bit defensive when people say something like, uh, when it refers to you of you're out there for just the money. And I'm thinking, if you know how fucking stupid you sounded right now, because you probably lose two to three million a year by people that don't buy your shit because you are a hunter, which far outweighs oh, 100%. the hunting community. Not to overly defend you, but that is a ridiculous statement. 
Oh, 100%. No, Sarah and I probably lose 40% of our income just because we say we're hunters on our, our major fitness platforms. and We're open about hunting. And that alienates most of the world. And our business being, you know, international, you know, people find out we hunt. They don't just not want to buy from us. They want to tear our entire company down, do whatever it takes to ruin our brand because they think we're killing their pet. Like they look at their, their pet dog that's 15 years old and they say, the Bulmars would kill you. Oh my God, I've got to do whatever it takes to ruin these people's lives. So most of our customers aren't okay with, with us hunting. So if we would literally just not post about hunting and post us in camo and openly talk about it on podcasts, we would make 40% more money, which would be substantial. But because hunting is so important to us and so, and we have so much passion for it, and it's a huge part of our life because we enjoy it, we enjoy the camaraderie, our friendships, and me growing up, you know, when Sarah and I have kids, like me growing up is a huge part of my youth, and, and I want that to be a part of my kids. We sacrifice a lot to be able to sit here and stand up for our hunting rights, and, and that's important to me as well as, as Sarah. And we definitely don't do this hunting thing for money. If we did, we would have a TV show because sponsors pay TV shows way more money. We would be aggressively getting more sponsors, but we've actually got rid of most of our sponsors except for Hoyt, Easton, and Sever. Um, you were still working back then with, uh, you are kind of teamed up with Ross with uh, Switchback Outdoors and and this was right around when we came out with a newer generation of uh, duplex frame. I think it was right when we came out with the hunting frames. And um, we were kind of short-stocked on them, and we were going to hook you guys all up with uh, with packs. Well, um, it, it was getting closer to season. We were low on inventory, and we couldn't quite get you guys all packed. So I, um, I had a couple of uh, prototypes, and I sent one out to you, and I think I sent one out to another guy. And... Um, that's kind of how we started our relationship, but we didn't talk a whole much, a whole bunch from there. And then, uh, we went to the expo in Salt Lake city and, um, Aaron was doing an Instagram story when we were in the hotel room, getting ready to go for the day. And, uh, I was putting my socks on and I had like this old pair of like Nike socks and the heels were worn out. So when I went to put the socks on, I pulled them up and I just ripped straight through the heel of the sock and, uh, <laughs> it was pretty embarrassing, but um, later that day, I'm sitting there at the booth, and uh, a guy walks up, and he has a pair of socks, and it's Jordan, and he's like, hey, I bought these for you. Thanks for letting me use your pack. So um, it was just kind of a funny story on, on how we became friends, and uh, I think that that day or that that week at the show, we kind of just BSed a little bit, and you invited me to come out bear hunting, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, this was, golly, 90 Probably 93. So I was like 16, 17. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we were, uh, we were hunting uh, caribou and, and uh, brown bears and uh, grizzlies, but that, it was close enough to the coast here classified as brown bears there. And so the, the hunter I had, it killed a really nice caribou, and we were up on this hill glassing, and there was no trees out where we were at. It was just brush. And we're looking, and we were seeing bears, and we put a couple of stalks on some different bears and he passed on them. And finally I'm glassing out across this and I see this silver tip, beautiful, uh, grizzly bear kind of ambling across. 
and pointed out, and the guy's looking at it. He's like, oh, man, that is a nice bear. And, you know, you can just tell the way they move. You know, a big bear just moves very deliberate and very slow. And so this this bear moves into this patch of brush. And I figured, man, you know, we watch and watch. and never came out. It's like, I think we can go after that. And so we take off off this hill to get this bear. And I don't know. I guess I'm thinking it's, uh, you know, a mile out there or a little bit further. And we had to cross this little gully in this creek. And we jump over there. And. We get across it, and all of a sudden, this patch of brush that I figured was about eight feet high, you know, maybe alders was not. It was like a patch of willows, and I'm like, oh, this is not right. <laughs> and the guy was kind of doing the same thing. It's like, hmm, this is not big enough. And, of course, we did not travel nearly as far as we thought it was, but there was just no perspective as we're looking across. And uh, anyway, I said, why don't you sit over here, and I'm going to circle up wind of this, and we'll get this bear busted out of here. And, of course, it wound up being a porcupine and uh, (laughs) ever since then I was like you know what before you open your mouth just watch and pay a lot of attention but you know you get it set in your head and again the whole thing was just you know I couldn't tell if I was looking a half mile away or a mile and a half and everything looked right but yeah that that was a pretty humbling experience and we both just kind of looked at each other and nodded and said yeah we'll just be quiet about this. <laughs> oh, Lord. 